Welcome back to the Brooklyn Poets Yopcast for January 8th, 2018, featuring Brooklyn Poets Prof. Joanna Furman leading our workshop and kicking off the open mic. I am your host and MC once again, Jason Koo. The Brooklyn Poets Yop is a monthly poetry workshop and open mic held at 61 Local in Cobble Hill. That's at 61 Bergen Street off Smith Street near the Bergen Street FG stop. For more info and to sign up, go to brooklynpoets.org. This month's open mic lineup featured Lauren McGrath, Jung Ahn, Betsy Gutmacher, Julia Knobloch, Alex Sarah Giorgio, Tamara Lee, Alan Braverman, Judy Schneier, Bonnie Belay, Patrick Quinn, Del Lemon, Liz Adams, Bill Livingston, Kyle Leung, Arthur Russell, Emily Blair, Helen Hutner, Sebastian Bernard, Phil Eggers, and Mike Cunningham. So let's get right to the action. The Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic for January. Enjoy. This is the Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic. We are in session for January 2018. It was at this time last year that we were recovering from the, uh, I guess it was a little bit before the inauguration last year, but uh, it's been a year. It's been good. It's not, not really. All right. It's, uh, I don't know. Do we feel worse now or better than a year before? In some ways worse, I know, but... Also, we're a year closer to being done with that guy, hopefully, right? And uh, a lot of the burden is on us, especially, right, with the elections. Make sure you vote this year. Unless you're, you know, Trump supporter in case, or Republican, don't vote then. (laughs) Stay at home. (laughs) We're open to all political views. We just prefer some, we just prefer some over others a little bit more vigorously. Um, If you haven't been here for the open mic, there is an advanced sign-up sheet. There's been a lot of chaos about this, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of angst and disappointment. I get it. Uh, everyone wants to read their work. I totally understand. We only have time for about 20 people, uh, and then we go to the wait list. Hopefully, we get to three to five people every month. So we usually get to about 23 to 25 poets a month, and even just with that number, we'd go, the event goes to like 9.30. I'm sure all of you don't want to be here till 11.30, even if you really want to read. So last, last month, we were because of the SmackDown, but... Uh, we only have the room for a certain amount of time, so we have 15 reserve spots and then the five open spots at the beginning of the open mic. If you really want to read next time you're not going to get to read this month, I suggest you sign up right after the event on your phone because the open mic reserve list will fill up in like three to four days. If you don't believe me, just take your chances and you, <laughs> you won't be on the reserve list, I guarantee you. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just what happens. It's always the second Monday of every month, uh, whatever that day is. February 12th. You're sure? Oh, okay. Well, Bill Livingston, happy birthday in advance. The next EOP will be February 12th. Yeah. Are you? <laughs> so you're not signing up. You're going to be singing instead. I thought you were signing up right now. <laughs> um, if you haven't read here before, and even if you have, a reminder, three minutes on the mic, one poem. Here, we're not just about you. We are about the room and the community, so that is an active thing that you have to build uh, pretty much every waking moment. So 
One poem, three minutes max on the mic is how we begin. We also record the Yop as a podcast, which we call the Yopcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes. If you are reading tonight and don't want to be in the recording, you should tell me in advance. Or not in advance, you can tell me after the event too, that's fine. And I can take you off the recording. Uh, we also vote for Poem of the Month every month. A lot of you were here last month. All that channels into the Poem of the Year Smackdown, which is a big event. We have 12 winners of Poem of the Month face off for Poem of the Year which carries uh, not only glory, but money. Um, so it's a big honor. Uh, we take audience vote for a poem of the month. So uh, some of you have my number already, but this is the first time I'll give it to you. You can just vote via text message. The number is 718-374-1953 to vote for poem of the month. And I will be repeating people's names as we go. All you gotta do is give me the poet's name. If you can remember the title of the poem, that's great, but I probably won't remember. It's better if you, better if you give me the poet's name. 718, don't worry. Don't worry, my friends. I will happily give you my number many times. 718-374-1953. We have many illustrious guests in the audience. Our winner of Poem of the Year, Shara Hardison, is in the front row. Give her a big round of applause. I'm sure she's really annoyed that I brought that up right now. Uh, our E-Opera of the Year from 2000 and, what year was it again? 2016. 2016, right? And from 2015, and our Poem of the Year winner from 2017. And our so, the year. and Emily Blair is in the second row. So, uh, a big round of applause for all of you, brilliant poets. We also have some finalists for Poem of the Year. I know Lauren McGrath is here, my student somewhere. She's got a new hair. She straightened her hair tonight, right? This is good. Anyway, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that, but uh, give a big hand for Lauren McGrath, <laughs> or don't give her a hand. I think you should give her a hand. And uh, if I don't see you and forgot that you're an award winner, trust that I love you and support you. <laughs> and I am mentally applauding you. Uh, did I forget anything, Arthur? Negative. I don't think I did. So before we begin the open mic, we are going to go to our featured reader, our professor that just taught a beautiful workshop. Give it up for Joanna Furman. Hi. I'm just going to read... Um, a few sections from the title poem of my last book and then a new poem. So the title poem is The Year of Yellow Butterflies and it starts with a couple of quotes. One from Frank Bedart, Ter <coughs> terrible to dress in the clothes of a period that must end. And the other is John Ashbery, you must remember that certain things die out for a while so they can be remembered with affection later on. And it's a long prose poem and I'm just gonna start in the middle and read a little bit of it. It was the year young women wore blue jeans with carefully ripped holes, holes revealing leggings, and in the knees of the leggings, little rips, glimpses of neon paisley tights. In the paisley tights, there were holes, and through these holes, we could see little patches of perfect skin-colored knee makeup. In the knee makeup, there would always be a gap where the real skin would peek out, and in that gap would be another hole, and in it, a surgically implanted transparent window revealing veins, and under the veins, there would be muscles, predictable bones. Inside those bones, we could see little tubes, and inside those tubes, there was the beginning or the end of language. I didn't know which, but I knew it was a kind of happiness, like a crooked line is happy, or like a million crooked lines are even happier. I thought of it as a great yellow swooping, maybe the music of glaciers melting, 
or mislaid planets slowly readjusting their orbits. You don't have to clap. This kid's going to keep going. It was the year everyone kept forgetting their babies on the conveyor belt. You'd pay the stork for it and then leave it right there, not noticing that it was wailing for breast milk or the past. So many people forgot their babies that year that you needed to open baby libraries across the country. You could check out other people's if you lost track of your own. I never bought a baby or even wanted to borrow one, but I like to go to the baby library at my lunch break. Under the mounds of congealing drool, I could finally remember my own lost babyhood, how blurry it was, how loud. I'm going to read one from the end. The weird thing about this poem is it was sort of seemed like a distant memory, even though these are sort of futuristic, but now it feels more like the present. Uh, it was a few years old. It was the year everyone had dreams about nuclear holocausts. In Laura's dream, the sun turned the color of pomegranates. In Max's, he hid under a couch with his pet hamster, Sam. Clara stood alone on the roof. Ken ate a cupcake shaped like a mushroom cloud while his friends joked about the end of the world. From what I remember of my dream, the streets were covered in sneaker tongs, angular wounds, burnt moss. I cried on the sidewalk with blue sirens. What I remember might not have been my actual dream. It might have been a memory of a promo for a TV movie, the one they advertised during breaks of the primetime soaps. My mother said I wasn't old enough to watch. So there there are like 20 sections of that, but (laughs) that was just a sampling. So this is a a new poem. It's called The Poetry Reading. The mustached, cowboy-hatted, thrice-divorced, old man poet, famous for sleeping with flaxen-haired, or was it flaxseed-eating, quote-unquote, nubile graduate students, is at the podium reading his poem, personifying a wedding dress. How sad it is, all alone in a dusty closet. How it longs to be laid on a funeral pyre or set ablaze next to the replica of Plath and Hughes's Robin Egg Blue Terra Cruiser gas range. Or was it the neglected moonlit member of the old man poet breaking into blossom? Or recoiling from the memory of time passing faster than the dust can settle on his brand new Honda Civic LX or ranch style remodeled sunroom? The audience is trying to remember what ingredients they need to pick up for tomorrow's paella. What that email said about the time for that meeting with Suzanne about assessment. They are alternately trying to remember if they remembered to order that Minecraft book for a nephew's eighth birthday party and worrying that their Facebook level friends notice that their purple cat socks clash with their scuffed burgundy clogs. And at a certain point, The poem has gone on for so long, no one can tell if the old man poet is still personifying that wedding dress or if a headless wedding dress has taken his place at the podium. We look up from the cell phones we are hiding in our laps, and there it stands, smoky and lacy, in front of the glowing microphone in the corner of the basement bookstore, 104 miles from the nearest artist colony. The flaming dress is burning like a 12-hour candle or like the lost poetry of an elderly Rambeau written on the slats of sunken ships. And the dress itself 
has grown a mouth, and in the middle of its flames, its lips belt out a new poem about fake cowboy poets, how sad they are, how alone. Thanks. Joanna, I like cowboy poets. Cowboy poets. Yeah, it's like a whole genre of. That that is a little sadder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, our first reader off the open mic list, you may remember from December, she competed for Poem of the Year and blew. All of us away. Give it up for Lauren McGrath. Well, that's the same height as me. Hi. I was originally going to read a different poem, but since we just had the workshop on the um, autobiography poem, I've actually already written one of those, so I'm going to read that one instead. Um, the title is A Superlative That My Friends Gave Me in High School. Um, most Likely to Tell a Dirty Joke in Church, a Self-Portrait Poem. I'm made of bones that are green and rotting, and I can hear them creak under the pressure of holding up all the guilt at being so sad. When I was a kid, I'd spend hours playing pretend. One minute, I'd be a pirate battling the Moby Dick that was my washing machine, and another minute, I'd be an adventurer climbing the Mount Everest disguised as my staircase. I doubled as a cowgirl whose horse was a couch cushion and as a rock star whose guitar was a shoebox. Then I'd be a knight fighting off a dragon. Sometimes for the heck of it, I'd be the fucking dragon. I don't remember when I just started being me all the time. I've mastered the art of self-deprecating humor paired with an overly cocky attitude. I am both shit and the shit at the same time. My Napoleon complex is so big that I think he actually had a me complex, the McGrath complex. In fourth grade, I would play basketball at recess, and one day the boys challenged me to a girls versus boys game, a magnificent display of prepubescent flirting. And one of them was Eddie, a tall and skinny French fry looking kid who was nastier than the boogers he ate. During the game, he refused to stop pushing me no matter how many times I told him to stop. I was barely four feet tall, so I had to jump to slam my elbow in his eye. He got 13 stitches. I hope he still has the scar. It's hard to cut the crazy out of someone whose hair rejects a brush as much as their throat rejects religion. People are always surprised when I say things, and I wonder if they would act as shocked if I weren't a tiny girl. The first time I smoked weed was in an overly packed car in my freshman year of college. My friend told me not to worry that everyone's first time was that of a bong while hotboxing a car of seven people meant for five. <laughs> My friend is a fucking liar. <laughs> I've been to more funerals than weddings. I demonized soccer moms, but as a kid, soccer practice was when I was happiest. I would leave with as many bruises as I had freckles, but both were hard to see under the coat of dirt. My blonde curls barely fit in the ponytail, and I felt as if I barely fit in my body as I ran from one end of the field to the other. When I was four, I told my mom that I wanted to be a nun. My neighbor proudly told me that she knew how to spell dog, D-O-G, and I said, I know how to spell God, G-O-D. I tried to commit suicide when I was 13. I left lacrosse practice early and swallowed my dad's heart medication. What kept his heart beating was going to stop mine. 
My younger brother attempted suicide three times, and I think I'm the one who inspired him in the first place. I've lost track of the amount of times my mother has told me she wished she were dead. I don't believe in God anymore. I found that music sounds better late at night while you're driving. I like to climb the roof of my garage at 3 p.m. and 3 a.m. to lie and listen to the sky. I rate my burps on a scale of 1 to 10. I dated a boy who ran track, and he told me that he doesn't want to feel anything, that he runs away from his feelings instead. I told him that running track and running away from feelings sounded awfully poetic. It felt less poetic when he ran away from me. Disassociation is defined as a separation from something from something else. Sometimes I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or awake, and I'd be watching my body go through motions without actually feeling any of them. My knuckles would turn white as my fingernails pierced through the skin of my palm. The blood running down my wrist was the only thing that could mince me. I was real. My handwriting switches from print to script in the middle of sentences. My hand can't choose which it likes better. I'm made up of passages of books I've read and lyrics from songs I listen to. I'm made up of crude jokes and loud laughs and unwavering opinions and the desire to be whatever it is that people expect me not to be. Damn good, right? Laura McGrath, Quinnipiac's finest. So if you don't know, I teach at Quinnipiac University, which is in Connecticut, uh, about an hour and a half away. So Lauren has made the trip, right, again, from Connecticut? Or you're staying here? Okay, well, it sounded more impressive <laughs> if you came all the way here. Another student of mine from Quinnipiac, uh, first time here, right? Yeah, a uh, very illustrious poet. She is one of the uh, winners of the Connecticut Poetry Circuit, which is a, a very prestigious honor, which they give to, I think, five poets from uh, very rich schools <laughs> in Connecticut. And uh, Nyung was uh, one of our winners from Quinnipiac. I think it's the first time we had a winner from Quinnipiac. So she is here tonight to read for the first time at the open mic. Give a warm welcome to Nyung An. Um, so I'm going to read, My Mother Doesn't Teach Me Mandarin. My mother doesn't teach me Mandarin or Cantonese, her mother tongue, the language she heard from her parents' cries, the language of bullets shearing rough skin and infectious bare feet on wet mud with words that exploded at her ears reflected from her mother's broken glasses and her father's quiet veins. But she wants to learn your English, the language of money and soft, comfortable beds, she knows the hello and the goodbye and the ditches followed by the Vietnam Dong and the progressive euros and dollars that will get her to bring me to the homes of those who enunciate your English at her ears with an unnaturally slow, loud voice and wild hand gestures as she admires the complexion of your skin and your eyes, the color she wants to see in her grandchildren one day. Perhaps it's only fair that she doesn't let me hear her voice for she couldn't understand mine. My Vietnamese and my English from the phrase, I like girls, I dare not whisper even in the dark, to the phrase, I love you, I share on my girlfriend's lips, only when my mother is surrounded by the darkness of her eyelids and the sound of heavy rain in the ocean that distances between her whisper and my voice.
Thank you, Nyung. That was Nyung An. I'm sure I'm butchering that name. Or not butchering it, but certainly not pronouncing it as well as I could. Before that was Lauren McGrath. Before that was Joanna Furman. Uh, by the way, you can't vote for Joanna. She's great, but uh, she's not part of the open mic list, so uh, don't waste your vote on her. <laughs> vote for her anyway. That could be fun. Our next reader is a longtime friend of Brooklyn Poets. Give it up for Betsy Guttmacher. Okay. Watch me fumble with my phone to find my poem. Sorry. Um, it's so fun to be here. I didn't come all last year. I think there's something about odd-numbered years that paralyzes me. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. I will. All right. Hi. I feel like I should break into like. Okay. This is called the long goodbye. This is something I just wrote last month. The long goodbye. I haven't told my legs how much I love them. Kissed my kneecaps, gristle, ankle, thigh. To roam is to sing, to whistle out unexplained. Farewell arms pushing away water, cutting air, plowing, flailing, side-slung, and humming. What I hold animates me, countless embraces. So long, fine fingertips, all those micro slices, healed without bandages, a miracle twisting my hair, entering a thousand forests. And my feet, the great conductors, tapping a mirror of Morse code to my fellow strangers all across the globe, carrying the same load. Good brain and your rivulets, a terrain, a quiver, another day, another map. Oops. All this, dis oh, I'm an old lady, I don't know how to use my phone. Um, let's do that at one again. Good brain and your rivulets, a terrain, a quiver, another day, another map. All this conquest only to drain absorbed by sand, picked at by a gull. Dear mysterious heart, I will miss you the most. May your efforts flutter in the hand of another berry picker, whisper in acres of lupine. Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. We're glad you're back, for sure. Uh, our next reader is known to all of you as the winner of Poem of the Year in 2016. Hopefully I'm getting my years right. Give it up for Julia Knobloch. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. So I brought two poems from my recent visit to Montreal, which is the city where Leonard Cohen grew up, but I stay under three minutes. The first one is called St. Lawrence River from the Plain. The great river I wanted to see since I was 12 streams below me to the northeast. Thin ice flows swirl around the islands, drift past silent reed grass and stiff poplars, the clock tower on the pier. This is the birthplace of your poetry, where tea and oranges touched your mind. You taught me to lean out for love. I lean against the window. Along the skyline, translucent smoke floats over blacklit silver, charcoal, bronze, and white, the only green for one moment, the bridge and lady of the harbor. And then the holy mountain where you are, frozen earth. <laughs> Boulevard Saint Laurent. 
At the mountain's foot live lost Canadians, Jews and Portuguese. They share distant horizons. Blue and white tiles hibernate in a small, small park. A sign in the sky reads Kenkayeri Asorish. I take a photo of a snow-covered gazebo. I buy a terracotta baking bowl. My teacher lived in a sturdy house. He was an involuntary prophet, a reluctant priest. The city shows me how he turned reality into imagination. The streets are all one song. I am guided even without his voice. Royal equals holy here. The main combines bygone and enduring glory, reveals the names of men I loved. A taxi driver from the Kabyle Mountains take, takes me to the cemetery. I don't tell him that I killed a Berber child. Arctic winds blow around the Stiebel where I pray. Ghosts from the future visit me before I fall asleep. I took the first communion in my cousin's white lace dress in a church called St. Laurentius. I walked long ways for water from graceful hands, the mystery of sacredness. A Jewish boy was curious about one and many saints in his native city, where Mary blessed departing sailors. The inconsistent things love makes us do are most coherent. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. That was Julia Knobloch. Before that was Betsy Guttmacher, Nyung Ahn, and Lauren McGrath. How's everyone doing? It's like, it seems subdued. But it's nice. It's like a peaceful subdued, I think. Yeah, exactly. You know me well. <laughs> That's why you need to sit there. <laughs> Uh, our next reader is a, another friend of ours that's returning after a long, I don't know what, I think she was abroad for a while, doing impressive stuff, probably. Give it up for Alex Sarah Giorgio. Okay, yes. Thank you for pronouncing my name right, Jason, wherever you are. <laughs> Thank you. Can you all hear me? Yes. All right. So I'm going to read a poem. Um... I haven't made up my mind on the title, so I'll get back to you on that. <clears throat> I'm discovering kindness to be a mess of in-betweens. Let me try to explain before you rush to leave here and go your way unchanged. Sometimes when I say kindness, I'm asking you to hold me. Sometimes I mean, take the soft bird of my fathomless breaking and let it rest in your cupped hands for just a little while. Sometimes when I say lover, I mean I need a good cry. We all do violence to each other in a thousand varied, unexpected ways, and I think it hardly matters. Let me brush my hand against your fluttering arms. When I do that, I mean I know it's not your fault. I know I too am helpless in my starving for affection. I know and know and know that you, like most of us, are trying. Let me press my thumb into the tender belly of your pain, that bruised red peach, and watch as you spill open. Have you ever felt beauty like this? And does it hit you suddenly how much we have to learn? When we do love each other, or more likely someone else, 
on another roof or balcony when all the leaves are turning. It'll be like the small new green plants along the windowsill, grateful and not at all surprised to find water there each morning. Tell me, are you ready? Thank you. first damn of the night. Those, uh, those first five open spot readers, my God. <laughs> it's going to be hard to match those poets. Alex, Sarah, Giorgio, Julia Knobloch, Betsy Gutbacher, Young Ahn, and Lauren McGrath. Damn good, all of you. Um, is Molly Watson here? I don't think so. Okay. Tamara Lee, you've shown up, yes? All right. So Tamara Lee was a finalist for Poem of the Year a couple of years ago. Give it up for Tamara. So Arthur, I need your help because help. do you remember if I read last year? <laughs> do you remember? Did I one time? Because I came and I meant to read this poem so many times, and then I was just thinking, oh, I should read it, but I'm not sure if I have. I don't think you have. Okay. Uh, so this may be a repeat, but I'm pretty sure I just came like four times meaning to read it and never got up. So, so throwback, 2017. <laughs> Round one. You say tomato, I say tomato. You say tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll say you never said the things that you said. You'll tell me you meant what I already said. You'll mirror me like you had original ideas. You'll teach me a thing or two about the world. You'll rename plagiarism with all your inventions. Your creativity circles me with currents so forceful I can't pinpoint a single stone of clarity in your mental flow. Sometimes I manage a mom momentary ebb, but my ripples don't permeate. Soon I am engulfed again in the swirling confusion of your well-versed rhetoric. Is this the way you actually think, or is it some kind of argument tactic? I look to gravity for help, but we can't seem to agree on the facts, and the only thing I know for sure is I am tired. Round two. I say potato, you say potato, which would be perfectly acceptable if you didn't need to bend my reality so harshly with all your well-traveled controversy. If we could mash it up harmoniously and flavor it to taste with cream and salt, but I find your opinions so difficult to swallow all the time. Round three. After I brought up Descartes, you said Descartes. <laughs> and I knew then you hadn't known what you were talking about. Your bullshit became lodged in my throat and there was only air in your logic and I choked on the endless difficulties of dealing with you. My core screamed what I couldn't question and I knew. My stomach had been aching for the truth the whole time. My palate had found it too bitter to realize. Now I wasn't hungry, and all I wanted to know is, what am I even doing here? It was the bland taste of victory, like MSG. It seemed so delicious for a time, but our flavor would have inevitably f fade away. Clarity came to me like sadness when I knew we had come to an impasse. No more bridges would be built. No more maps could mark a middle ground. No choice but to return to the sounds of our respective echo chambers. Nothing to breathe but the same old rhetorical auction, oxygen. I could do it in my sleep and call that living. You once told me I like to argue. 
But doesn't it seem like the whole world wants to? Are we doomed to watch everything die of asphyxiation? At least by now, I was finally certain that we had. Thanks. Man, this is good so far. It's gonna be tough, tough to vote. You should wait till the end to vote. You could vote for any of those six. Uh, I don't think you read that, because uh, I feel like I would have remembered that. That was damn good. I also like that rhetorical oxygen almost became rhetorical oxen, which, which would also be good. <laughs> and uh, Descartes. I know there was somebody in here that, that says Descartes, and I just, I just love the thought of that person during <laughs> that poem. <laughs> uh, I love you, whoever you are, that says Descartes. Our next reader, that was for you. I'm sure it was you, Arthur. <laughs> Our next reader uh, just had an incredible recovery from s something heart-related, so it's just amazing that he's here at all. Give it up for Alan Braverman. Well, I can breathe more as a poet. <laughs> My uh, cardiologist says, go and read tonight. And, and, and your heart is good. It's a uh, good evening, everyone, in, uh, in our snowbound city. I've studied classical music since the age of six and accepted at the Manus College of Music at the age of 11. When I was 17, I gave up uh, classical music and I played in a rock band. And uh, my poem is a tribute to rap, rap and rock stars who were tragically taken from us over, over the last 40 years. Okay. Jimi Hendrix, all 27, all along the watchtower. Hey, Joe, the wind cries merry as I fall into a purple haze from an overdose of drugs and alcohol, but the legend perseveres. Brian Jones, 27, in and out of jail, then sinking into a pond a pool, I'm sorry, being too high to catch his breath. This rolling stone descends to the bottom, but hopefully never is never forgotten by Mick Jagger and his band. Kurt Cobain, 27, seeks nirvana using heroin, reaching an early death rather than rebirth, though his songs were resurrected. Jim Morrison, 27, misuse of illegal cocaine, heroin, and the consumption of liquor, a rider on the storm, waiting for the sun to light my fire as it vanishes along the horizon, though the memory of his talent is everlasting. Janis Joplin, 27. Take a piece of my heart in an accidental overdose. Down on me like a ball and chain cannot imprison the memory of this legendary rock performer. Amy Winehouse, 27 as they try to make me go to rehab. While love is a losing game, tragically dying of alcoholic poisoning, remember it, remembered as a songstress with passion. Richie Valens, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, killed in a plane crash. Their songs rose from the rubble, elevated, elevated to immortality. Following the day of the music died, brought to light by Don McLean's song, American Pie. Otis Redding, 26, 
a soul legend seen at the dock of the bay. These arms of mine grasping the mic for the last time until his plane crash, though his songs will forever resonate. Notorious Big 24 and Tupac Shakur 25, American rappers both shot and killed. Biggie Small's debut album, Ready to Die, foretold his future. Tupac's All Eyes on Me, released by Death Row Records, projected his untimely departure. Both men being in the sights of murderers, drive-by shootings, while their music continues to reach the heart of the African-American soul. Finally, John Lennon, 40, a political activist whose songs resonate today, a former Beatle wanting people to stand by me and imagine no heaven or hell where we all live in peace until an assassin with a gun named Mark David Chapman ended his life. Shots heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. That was super depressing, <laughs> but beautiful. What did you say was the anniversary of Dock of the Bay? Dock of the Bay came out today. That's when it came out? 40, I, it came out a week and a half after he died. Even sadder. Thank you. Sweet. <laughs> I have a difficult personality when it comes to sadness, don't I? So it's like sardonic sadness, always. It's always a paradox, my sadness, except when I'm weeping about Cleveland sports. Then it's just pure, exactly. Our next reader is a friend of many of us, great reader. Give it up for Judy Schneier. Um, this is a poem I wrote a while back from my friend Julie Hart. It's called, My Minnesota. <laughs> if I move in with Julie's family, they can call me Julie. I will only have to change one letter of my name. I'd be happy to bake the cookies her sisters always bake for family parties. Chocolate chip cookies are one of the few things I make well. I could make them over and over for every family party. I don't know how to arrange flowers, and I don't like to learn new things. But if they do it over and over for every party, I could pick it up eventually. <laughs> I would go to the parties every weekend and sit quietly in a corner and watch the children play. I'll talk about the weather with Julie's sisters and we'll get a head start on planning the next party. Though of course it will be just like the last one. That's what I like about Minnesota. <laughs> Julie's parents might hope I'll be like her, but I'm sure they will quickly see that I'm more like them. I will also lose my keys but I can probably climb through the window more easily. I'd like to be useful. I'll put Julie on speed dial in case we need her. <laughs> I know the winters are cold, but I like to spend a lot of time at home streaming Netflix and stretching my hamstrings. A simple life full of family, that's what I want. To be gathered in, nested, smiling at everything with no one expecting too much of me. I'm sure they'll be pleased that I make cookies but even happier that I really want to make them, unlike Julie, who really wanted to leave and never make them again. But we won't say anything bad about her. After all, she's their real daughter. 
even though we now have the same name and I live here and she's so far away in the big city. And I never roll my eyes when mom and dad lose their keys and phones and shoes, when they forget to pay bills, buy food or do laundry. I forget all those things too. Unlike Julie, who's so very helpful and never forgets anything. But she does get that certain look in her eye and her mouth gets just a little bit tight when she sees we are confused. <laughs> it's the stress of that big city life that keeps her juggling things and running around like a chicken without its head, as my mother would say. I mean my biological mother, not Julie's mother. <laughs> Julie's mother would never say an unkind word about Julie, except that it's strange for someone to like a big, dirty city with no family better than Minnesota, where people care for each other and have lovely celebrations. It's not as though you have to live in Brooklyn to have good politics or entertainment. Our Netflix stream just fine, thank you very much. <laughs> it's hard to know what Julie was looking for that she couldn't find at home. I agree, but say nothing. I'm sure Julie knows what's best for her. She likes those expensive cafes and waiting for the R train. She likes watching dirty bags fly down the street. <laughs> and the cyclists who surprise you when you step off the curve. She's gotten used to rude, harried people who are not related to her. It would be confusing if she returned. Our names are so similar. But that's okay. I'll make name tags. Julie S. and Julie H. She can tell me her favorite animal. Mine's a poodle. And I'll make a tracing on cardboard. I'll cut them out and write our names in block letters. We can fasten them on, on with masking tape so we don't ruin our blouses with safety pins. I know Julie will have hers forever. I'll probably misplace mine pretty quick. But think about it. If Julie's there, she can help me find it. God damn. I'm glad you exist. So that, so that poem exists. Yeah, there's no other reason, Arthur. Um, wow, that was something. That was uh, one of the most original poems I think I've ever heard. That was such a. It was like part part single white female, part <laughs> part something entirely new. Um, wow. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Fairy Home Companion. A good tribute to Minnesota, too. Uh, wow. That was Judy Schneier, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Is Charlene Guerna here? Thank you for that. Uh, our next reader is Bonnie Belay. Give it up for Bonnie. Getting out. Portugal is small. Mexico can be dangerous. My brother, who has a house on the Costa Brava, says there's anti-Semitism in Spain. For a while, I thought about going to Puerto Rico. I have friends there. They lost their roof in the first hurricane. I wanted to send money, but they said there's nothing to buy. What I love about travel is being astonished. Day after day, I let myself be extravagant. Any place I live will use up its newness in weeks. I can't afford extravagance over time. 
I'm okay eating different foods at different times. I could live in Spanish. I could learn Portuguese. But if the old men who fought and died to keep slaves continue to ride over our courthouses, if California burns to the ground, any place will be better, even Puerto Rico off the grid. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm learning Portuguese right now. Was there some <laughs> Was there some shade in there? As opposed to Portuguese Portuguese? I mean, I may have a reason to learn Brazilian Portuguese. <laughs> that's just that's on the recording. I'm gonna play it for her. <laughs> Our next reader, I think, is a Yop debuter, if I'm not mistaken. Give it up for Patrick Quinn. Hello. Um, yeah, <laughs> a little bit taller. Um, I've been making noise music for the last decade. And over the last year, I've been considering what noise writing would look like. So I've been doing research about that and made this chat book in response to that and our current political climate. So I'm um, just going to read a little bit from this. Two confession ulptures unleash their dark new style forecast. Lask by Antic, seized momentarily within spaces both physical and psychological. Canvas bondage, late stage cartel thoughts lay motionless in the same place. Significant imp, move other. Found dead next to a river, shepherd with an AK-47 in box and absent face. Last two tapes, each unique scratch by insurrection. The future waving a machete, snug in blankets. Hell, yeah, she, her, kin tubby, theft, genocide, bondage, dental and epilogue, face the inescapability of the past. Ball of fire gave industry an organ. Tome tray past the furnace, entree science et fiction in the evening hours, ek beth os mas do anything. Nickel ride XC, imagine a garden, a perfect metaphor for the mysterious holes in her jaw day station. Remove room, unsigned C, H, and D when jungling in town. Resp bounds ascent, ep, extensive distortion and use of noise and found obj nick. Dandel lock, open their minds in the way, only severe trauma or dropping acid do. Hey, motherfuck, give me your Bitcoin, obsolete presence, food ration, let the carcass go. Ancient wall, 10th century with holes for raptors, two miners completed. Rope bombage, mummification, etc. Disease carrier, build your own emergency shelters of last resort. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Good poem and good height. Very little adjustment required. Uh, our next reader is another long time. For, it's like uh, kind of a little bit like a reunion this year. I'm seeing a lot of people I haven't. Well, actually, I saw I saw you last month. I should, anyway, but we'll just say it anyway, just because it's always good to see you. Give it up for Del Lemon. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Thanks. Um, I'm going to read a, um, a summer poem. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
this is, okay. The magic out here on Cape Cod. People never believe that they are going to see whales when they go on a whale watch out here, and they almost always do. Why don't they believe? Why would there be whale watches if there are no whales? <laughs> Maybe in other places there are no whales, but off of Cape Cod the whales always appear, which makes me believe that it's magic out here. People know it's magic and that's why they come, but sometimes it's hard to see and that's the nature of magic. Nature is also magic out here, the scruffy barren landscape with scrub pines, dune grass and sand. It looks almost ugly at first, but then there's all the surrounding salt water and sky with the ever-changing light that brought artists to paint and writers to write. Sometimes it's hard to tell where the land ends and the sky begins while the whales are out there doing their thing, swimming around the oceans of the world. And how great is that? By this point in the poem, you might have decided you want me to write differently, less chatty and neurotic, <laughs> more formal and constrained, like the nature poems all those guys and their friends write, and still write. Or am I wrong about that? I should just shut up and get back to the poem, right? People come from all over the world to see whales off of Cape Cod. They get into big boxy powerboats to go out and find them. Why? Because it's magic when whales appear. How free they are. How big. How big and free. Swimming around the oceans of the world. And they are not fish. They are mammals like us. They are like us. Big and free. And free of us and our world on land. It's freeing just to get on the boats to go out where the whales are. We leave our own concerns behind to look at something other than ourselves, to look, to be out on the sea, in the open air, where we become free too, chasing them down to stare at them, living in a way that we can't. And when they burst up from the water to fly into the air, it's called breaching, as if they are breaking all the rules, just like I broke them in this poem. So that's some of the magic of being out here on this narrow strip of land, breaching out into the ocean, curling around at the end and confusing people, part land, part sea. The water is so deep and the land is so dry, but you can get by and forget about the eye for a while out here, and that is magic too. Thank you. God damn, it's like, while I was getting fat and drunk this holiday, everyone like went home and wrote the most amazing poem <laughs> they ever have written. I'm just like amazed at all these poems. You look very unimpressed though. You're just like very, uh, very <laughs> I wish I had a recording of that. Um, wow, Del Lemon, thank you, the whales. <laughs> um, is Anam Satire here? No comment. <laughs> Just let that stand on the recording. <laughs> uh, she said she was coming. She was, uh, anyway, she was trying to make it. Apparently she didn't. Uh, our next reader, I think, is another Yop debuter. Give it up for Liz Adams. Peppermint. Put me in your mouth and suck out all my sweetness, sucking harder, longer. Trace my contours with your slippery tongue. 
Roll me over getting to know my fresh minty taste that will flavor the very air that comes out of your lungs. Keep me there in my wet pink home with marble fences. Gradually, you will work over me so much that I will become less, disintegrating inside of you. You will do the violent act, biting. Then I will be split selves, dancing in opposite corners of your whole, your whole mouth filled with bits of me. I become so small until you swallow what's left of me. Damn, man. I'm running out of superlatives. Uh, just damn good shit, people. This might be the best open mic ever. Uh, I'm not kidding. Like, not just ours. Like, ever. <laughs> like, history of the world. Uh, no pressure to the next few people. Our next reader is a, another longtime friend of Brooklyn Poets, uh, wearing a Steelers hat, which I will forgive him for, just because the Browns are 0-16, so who really cares? <laughs> There is no rivalry anymore. <laughs> Give it up for Bill Livingston. Yeah. It's called, There Are Too Many Bicycles in Pharmaceutical Ads. <laughs> there are too many bicycles in pharmaceutical ads, too many elders lapping the young in our swimming pools. Too many brisk walkers in crisp tracksuits with gleaming starshine teeth. Too many white fathers building dollhouses for daughters in perfect health. Too many white mothers in bountiful gardens with flawless sunlight. Too many purebred canines along for the journey towards relief. Too many warrior and tree yoga poses against soft focus sunrises. Too many romps on pristine beaches awash in seashells ready for their close-ups. Too many sober rounds of golf on unnaturally green fairways. Too many patients as wind-up toys you can't even find in the stores. Too many threatening disclaimers telling, telling us how deadly the cure is. Let's see more astronauts dodging meteors, or better yet, punching them back into space while dealing with Crohn's disease. Let's see more octogenarians battling zombie hordes while fighting their rheumatoid arthritis. Let's see bold criminals dodging police on foot and horseback while fleeing from depression. Let's see Nepalese Sherpas hang gliding from the summit of Everest during their flight from psoriasis. <laughs> Let's see a battalion of axe throwers splitting the apples on their lovers' heads while carving out the cancer from their bodies. Let's see the Inuit deep diving with the orcas, singing their songs to the ocean's floor while, dr while drowning their impotence. Let's see three out of five poets surveyed. <laughs> Let's see the ominous disclaimer replaced by play it safe, smoke pot, look into acupuncture, and vote Democrat. And let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah. Thank you. Bill Livingston, always good. Thank you. Uh, it's very true, too. <laughs> our next reader is another star student of mine from Advanced Poetry 
2017. Those snaps are coming from the students in the class. <laughs> Quinnipiac University. He has since graduated and moved on to better things like publishing his first chapbook. So give, before you even know who it is, give him a round of applause. I know it's a lot to ask <laughs> to applaud for someone you don't know. But uh, not only is he a fine poet, but he's also an Asian American man. And you know how I feel about those guys. Give it up. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for Kyle Young. Oh, thanks, Jose. You're welcome. Thanks for that, introdu that introduction, Koo. The only thing that comes above the Asian American male is Cleveland sports teams. <laughs> True in his book. <laughs> it's like Cleveland sports teams, Asian American males, his fiance. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is a new poem that I just wrote, uh, I think last week. It's titled, Why I Never Said Anything. It's already sealed into the broken grout between our clacking tiles, carved across each wooden dowel, tumbling under your swollen feet. Each sigh is more than I need. Each is woven through the screech of rotors, too expensive to change, dragging mother upstairs in front of the mirror, slapping wrinkles from her cheeks as if those hands can teach a lesson to aging this time. Each night I come home too late, father pretends not to smell the alcohol and asks if I have eaten. Each time I am too drunk to tell him I have had enough. So my tongue unfolds that I have had too much. I had have to eat enough. I had to have enough. I have. I can't distinguish a cry from a laugh anymore. How can you when you rarely hear one without the other? Thank you. Damn good, Kyle Leung. Doesn't come before my fiance though. Let's, let's, come on now. I mean, I love him, but come on. <laughs> uh, our next reader is you. Give it up for Arthur Russell. I'm going to do a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of days ago, I, I got accepted to a two-day uh, master class that's going to be taught later this month by Gregory Pardlow uh, at Poets House. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, <clears throat> Digest. So I went right out and got the book from the library. And I found a poem in this book about a strange phenomenon, uh, Argentinian parrots living in the streets of Brooklyn something I knew about somewhat because, well, you'll see. The poem was one of Pardlow's Klinemann improvisations, where he took a quote from another writer, then swerved towards a new song. And I was already interested in this Klinemann stuff because I'm reading Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence, which uses that term, Klinemann, to support his argument that strong poets deflect the works of their forebears, swerving towards 
Jerusalem or something. So I decided that I would write uh, an improvisation on his improvisation, but in order to read my improvisation, I have to read his poem to you, which I don't mind doing at all because it's really good. It's called, so this one's a Klineman improvisation on Deleuze and Guattari, who said, making love is not just becoming as one or even two, but becoming as a hundred thousand. Raise your eyes along the spires of Greenwood Cemetery or stand on the ball fields of Brooklyn College on, in hopper-esque light. Quaker parrots will appear to you like the visions of St. Francis, lift the snatches of sound woven to make their voices and call to you from their nests, a nation of cheer trumpets and conch shells, a frenzied population of twitching toes. They seduce us not simply with their tropical verve, Listen into the feathered shrubbery of their heat, their chattering lines from Emma Lazarus, their trading fours on salt peanuts, their mourning, their cousin, the Carolina parrot, reduced to a flourish on ladies' headgear. Who flushed them from their ancestral skies of Argentina? What love sustained the awareness of their bodies, whether as chattel or deportees, such distance? And who speaks for this diaspora, heedless of empire's mundane cartography? If we ask, why Brooklyn? We hear only our own reply. If not here, where? Then tease a final query from our minds, like thread from a lawn chair, parroting Hillel, and if not now, when? That's his poem. So this is my poem. It's called Diaspora. I have raised my eyes to a Midwood Brooklyn sycamore. On the walk, we'd take around my parents' block to smoke some pot before Thanksgiving dinner. And I have seen the stick nest of the Quaker parrots jutting like a beaver lodge above the leaf-strewn lawn of the Orthodox Jews who invaded our assimilated neighborhood in the decades since we siblings moved to Jersey and Connecticut unaware that kings would one day rise again. And I have heard their noisy chattered ruckus, though to me they sounded less like Diz and Bird at Minton's Playhouse popping peanuts than housewives calling deli orders out to countermen in lab coats and smudged white paper sidecaps on a Friday at Blue Ribbon while their ears, while their cars were double parked on Avenue J. So when my sister touched my sleeve to pass the roach, I pointed as first one and then another, green as Kool-Aid or Hawaiian shirts, emerged and paused at the nest's dark mouth, pulsed their verdant wings, then flew away and asked, Cindy, are those parrots or a figment of the weed? My uncle Fred and Cindy's boyfriend Robert watching Dallas play the giants in the kitchen, dipping crackers in the baked brie before the guests arrived, when we, half-baked ourselves, got home from our pre-Thanksgiving walk. I told my mother, peeling carrots at the sink for crudité, there were parrots, green as Kool-Aid or Hawaiian shirts, living in the tree outside the Burson's house. And she said, Arthur darling, Burson moved out years ago. The Yamis live there now. In his Klineman improvisation, 
Gregory Pardlow sees those parrots whose ancestors arrived from Argentina in the hold of an airship and escaped from a crate at JFK as surprising avatars of love dispersed and thriving on electric poles and street trees from Greenwood, where I've never been, to the ball fields of the college where I also smoked some pot back in the day. Now, the cognoscenti give Quaker parrot tours to day trip hipsters who are forced to sign agreements to keep nesting sites a secret, lest the poachers catch and make the parrots into pets, the very things that they were meant to be. That distant day, their forebears came to America in crates. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. I don't know if anyone else appreciated that Harold Bloom stuff, but. <laughs> well, it's an old uh, teacher of mine. Back when I was young. Our next reader is our Yopper of the Year from 2017. Give it up for Emily Blair. decide what poem to read. And I'm always wondering if I've already <laughs> but then I figure maybe people won't remember anyway. Okay. Um, so this is called Weaving. Yellow, red, yellow, then black with white warp showing through. You worked for weeks on this one summer at the day camp where I saw Maggie Gillenhall kissing her child goodbye and knew I must be paying way too much for a little time to work while you picked out colors using a rubric known only to you olive green bronze then a rainbow red green and blue you let the smooth thin cotton snake through your small hands and the fuzzy wool as i ran errands or sent off emails saying sounds good will do in the back of my mind i kept checking on you while you chatted with classmates laughed ate your lunch felt and judged these textures, learned to thread your shuttle to work the harnesses, pulling the thread, a pink like old carpet, a thin gold, a sparkly mauve, then periwinkle, slowly creating a cloth that will be turned into this pencil jar cover. A many-colored artifact of long ago you learning to do without me. I never noticed how even the selvages are. Thank you, Emily. Always good. Okay, we're on to the wait list. We have time for a few poets. The first two are interns who have privileged spots on the wait list. Maybe you think that's unfair, but you could volunteer too. The opportunity is open to everyone. Our first reader on the wait list is Helen Hutner. Give it up for Helen. This poem is called Yesterday. I haunt my own surroundings. I am my own ghost. I slip back into memories and stalk who I once was, feel what I once felt. In a bluish light and in some strange skeletal frame, you're usually there. We're gone, you whisper. I know, I say. But I wasn't ready, your words slip like molasses through the wind. 
There's a fire in you now, you say. I feel it more, and it couldn't, it can't, it can't have been there before. Ocean girl, I say, tears welling in my eyes. I've grieved now. I'm free now. Can I tell you a story? I found one of my demons once. It poked its head out from the inside of my arm, and I slowly pulled it out. Like a leech, it had dug into me. I held it up to my face and watched it snake and hiss. And I fell madly in love with this little heartbreaker. Because though it was dark and wretched, it grew from you. The insults you laid on me, the dark corners that made for me, the children born of that with their snake tails and their snaggle teeth, slithered out from my broken heart and came to the surface to meet their mother. And I loved them. I greeted them with love because, though they may be difficult to look at, though they're gruesome, as it happens with some things, conceived in hate and fear, these little angels of darkness I didn't know then. But when you handed me your darkness, when you made it mine because you couldn't tend to your own, is when I found my freedom. I've realized now, these dark things you gave me, they too were gifts. Thank you. Damn good. Brooklyn Poet Staff kicking ass. Our next reader is a, another wonderful intern of ours. He's at the swag table if you want to buy some t-shirts later. 20% off, 25% off. Give it up for <laughs> give it up for Sebastian Bernard. Um, this is called uh, Istanbul, June 2016, Portrait of Youth. The young man looks out from his window in the Roma quarter and sees too much because he was beaten by boarders. Strolling past the Marines, you notice his teeth are stained from smoke, his eyes grayish-green, at 24 his hair white in places, neck marked by the yoke of history or his own hanging. You could cry when he trips and laughs a nervous laugh at the spice seller's joke. The basic necessity of assertion inside poverty is masculinity's empty will. The logic of his eyes that of a child's unruly respect for the world, though it may have its head off. The gypsy trying to sell handkerchiefs and the colors of her people to a blonde tourist who just wants her picture. The square erupts with laughs and he's trying to step where there is space. He noticed again the past bend his eyes. In his room, under a light that refracts through mauve laundry, the hairs on the back of his neck stand tall as you pull out and slowly re-enter him, like a dream. Only after a smoke can you summon the power it takes to leave bed, dress and lean down to tie his shoes. When he tries to kiss you on the cheek, the bird of infinite intentions, who wishes never to disturb anything, but you've decided that he's worth all the love in your bones. He smiles, and your insides are a mirrored bowl where his sweet voice makes its popping sound, spasming into your thoughts. His cheeks, like ellipses, running to peace, to more desperation in this country, this new country so familiar to his, torn by war, secular and disturbed by revenge, the sobriety of his ancestors in his eyes, 
the mountains of his teeth, his noble lips, his slight torso of Apollo, the beauty even of his slender feet, smooth with prayer's ablution, you dream of kissing just once. We're perfectly weak, he says, looking up, and just as brave, and slowly, like a trap, that smile that gives the world briefly its slip to be good. Thank you. Damn fine. Broken Poets interns. If you want to intern for us, you just have to be as good as Sebastian and Helen and Tess. <laughs> no pressure. Also have to be willing to work the second Monday of every month. That's, that's the two requirements. We have two more readers on the wait list. Uh, and then the rest of you will hopefully read next month. Um, our next reader is Phil Eggers. Give it up for Phil. Thank you, for, thank you for sticking around. Um, apologies, my voice is a little gone. Uh, this is a poem for Skinny Dennis, which is a honky-tonk bar in Williamsburg. You used to be able to see tits in this bathroom stall. Vintage chicks and assless chaps. Perms as above, so as below. While their biker boyfriends leered, jeered, cheered, and groped along. You used to look forward to taking a piss. Those babes and their biker boyfriends validated your every nightly endeavors, made madness seem like the way, the truth, and the light, that sheen and sheer of a soft 70s lighting, a siren song. Take a shot and come to me. Take a shot and come to me. Take a shot and come to me. And maybe it's only been a minute, and maybe it's only been a decade. But when my bladder leads me to this familiar pasture, all I see is garbage graffito. Silver tags, green tags, black, white, and red tags. Stickers for shows, stickers for the revolution. Plywood over punched in holes. Not a tit or an ass or a biker boyfriend to behold. The passage of time has papered over a young man's lust. Your friends fade away. The walls close in. And you can no longer be sold solely on the merits of a Miller High Life. You pay less attention to the seasons, hands on a clock, the strength of your hairline, or the bags under your eyes. You measure time by the debasement of your favorite bathroom stall and wonder why. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. And our final reader of the night, not sure if you've read here before, but if you haven't, welcome. Uh, give it up for Mike Cunningham. Sorry, yeah, so this is called uh, The Crimson Loss. I put off this autumn, put it into the street. I rake leaves, rake leaves into the large black bags. I get a call. My mother fell, broke her hip. When the hurricane hit, she fell in the dark. While I rake leaves, she's in a nursing home. I open a large black bag. I know one day another call will come, a funeral home. Rake the leaves, rake the leaves, put off this autumn, put it into the street. 
Yet, there is a beauty in this brittle season. Yellow, orange, crimson loss. I toss off this autumn for now, put it into the street. I rake leaves, rake leaves into large black bags. Thank you, Mike. You have read here before, haven't you? Or yeah, yeah. I thought you looked familiar. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, that was Mike Cunningham, an old friend of ours. <laughs> before that, I'm going to read back through the names. All right. That was Mike Cunningham, Phil Eggers, Sebastian Bernard, Helen Hutner, Emily Blair, Arthur Russell, Kyle Leung, Bill Livingston, Liz Adams, Del Lemon, Patrick Quinn. Bonnie Belay, Judy Schneier, Alan Braverman, Tamara Lee, Alex Giorgio, Julia Knobloch, Betsy Guttmacher, Nyung An, and Lauren McGrath. That was 20 readers. Took a little longer than usual. I wonder why. Anyway, that was 20 readers. Uh, the number to vote is 718-374-1953. 718-374-1953. You should vote once. I will notice if you vote twice, unless you use two different numbers. <laughs> uh, don't do this thing. Don't don't do this thing where you tell other people that aren't at the event to vote. I noticed a couple of people tried to do that last month. Interesting strategy. I was not fooled. I was not fooled. However, one of them was like, "Hey, so and so, text this number and vote." I was like, "I'm on to you." Uh, if you read, you could vote for yourself. It's not the greatest thing you could do, but you could. You know, again, there's. There is karma, but uh, you might not believe in it. Um, 718-374-1953. Um, what was I going to say? Next month, February, I think that was February 12th, right, Bill? Your birthday, second Monday of every month, uh, Hala Alyan will be here. She is teaching a new workshop for us called Poems of Dislocation. It's an online workshop, so I'm pretty sure her YAP workshop will be on that theme. Fantastic poet, also a novelist. She came out with a novel last year, which is just blowing up everywhere. Uh, she read for us a couple years ago, if you remember. Uh, check out the website for that. Uh, look at the workshops. Again, early registration deadline is February 11th. Fellowship deadline is a week before that, February 4th. Any questions? Okay, you guys have a great audience. This is, again, what, let's just appreciate how amazing this open mic was. Really fantastic quality of the poems read tonight. And uh, if you know anything about me, you know I don't just say that <laughs> because I am sarcastic all the time. Even now, I'm being sarcastic. But uh, I do appreciate greatness and beauty. So great job, poets that read tonight. Great job, audience. Like everyone is here. Nobody has left, which is incredible. Also, I think it's quiet because there's no band downstairs. So let's just appreciate. <laughs> let's appreciate that there's no music downstairs for once, and we can actually hear the poems. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time, February. Have a good night. So, there you have it, the Brooklyn Poets Yop Open Mic for January 8th, 2018. Thanks to our professor, Joanna Furman, for teaching a wonderful workshop, playing with autobiography, and kicking off our open mic with a few poems. 
from her most recent book. Congrats to Judy Schneier, longtime yopper from way back in the day. Winning poem of the month for her terrific poem, My Minnesota, truly one of the best poems I've ever heard read at the Yop. In tribute to fellow Yopper Julie Hart and her family back in Minnesota. Judy has earned free admission to a future Yop and a spot in our Poem of the Year Smackdown for 2018, which comes your way on December 10th. It's never too early to plan. Save that date come out for that event. It's always a great time. Our next Yop comes your way in February, the second Monday of that month, as usual, February 12th. New Brooklyn Post professor Hala Alyan will be leading a workshop related to the theme of her upcoming online workshop called Poems of Dislocation. So that should be an exciting thing. If you know Hala's work, you know she is fantastic and I'm really excited to see what she's got in store for our students that night. For more info about the Brooklyn Poets Yop and to sign up, go to brooklynpoets.org. As always, the open mic lineup fills pretty quickly, at least the reserved part of that lineup does, so you do want to act on that as soon as possible. We hope to see you then. For now, take care, be well, and be safe.